being nice and easy to get along with and and reasonable when inevitable challenges do come up during a process, and especially in the post letter of intent signing due diligence period, uh, I'll tell you it has an effect on how much buyers are willing to work with you. compression and commoditization have hit every area of financial services. Retirement advisors are no exception, and it's only slated to get worse. Why and how is it addressed? Much more will have to be done with much less, but it will create resilience and will improve the firm's enterprise value if and when the business is sold. We turn to M&A advisory firm Wise Rhino to tell us why. In yet another fun interview with the firm's Dick Darian and Peter Capanna, we run through an informative top 10 list of the biggest things that affect the value of your advisory business. Dick, how about a few opening thoughts to set the stage? Yeah, hi, thanks, John. Great to be with you today. You know, I, I've always been a fan of John Wooden, John, and you know, one of the quotes that, that I read about John was, uh, you know, it's too late uh, for preparation when opportunity strikes. And I really think that uh, makes so much sense relative to the retirement and wealth firms we work with. You know, our work with advisory firm comes down to assisting <clears throat> generally in the best alignment of owners, staff, and clients. But it's really a process. It's not a point-in-time reaction. And if you look at the 120 or so retirement and wealth advisory firms if we have successfully assisted going to market, um, that's only a, a small percentage of the firms that we've actually worked with. In fact, well over 350 retirement and wealth advisory firms have kind of asked us to help them figure out uh, you know, what should we do going forward. And it has to do with the resiliency of their businesses and also building enterprise value. So, you know, the resiliency really is that best alignment of partner, staff, and clients. Certainly every day that these guys are, and gals are building businesses, you want to be doing it in a way that they're maximizing enterprise value. But really even more important, there's so many different ways to look at the world. And one of them, of course, is, hey, I need to sell my business. But majority of people don't do that. And what they want to work on is those things, but also looking at the unique uh, inorganic opportunities in the marketplace, John. So you don't just have to sit there or sell. Those are two binary solutions. What many firms are doing and should be doing more of is understanding they could build organic, inorganically, acquiring, merging, and also focusing on making their practice better and more resilient. So um, I'll throw it back to you and Peter. You and Peter can get into the things we've observed and maybe our top 10. Excellent. So what really affects the deal value of practices that decide to sell? Peter, let's go ahead and get into the top 10 list that, that Dick mentioned here, beginning with number 10, personal history. Okay. Thanks, John. Uh, all right. We're starting off our top 10 with something that I think you might find surprising. And this comes up in maybe 10, 15% of our deals. And that's when the buyers do background checks on the principles of the firm. They occasionally turn up something concerning, uh, either from a legal or a financial uh, standpoint. I mean, uh, we, we have all certainly made mistakes in our lives, but when I'm getting clients ready to start a process, I do ask them, is there anything I need to know about them personally? Uh, my unofficial stat is that half tell me up front and the other half wait for it to be discovered. Uh, to date, only one of our deals has failed to go through because of a personal history problem, but the key is to get in front of it. It's almost always a solvable issue, but it sometimes does affect deal value. Peter, can you give us an example of something that might not affect the deal and maybe something that does affect the deal? What kind of a, a, a background problem are we talking about here? Um, in terms of the personal history, sometimes there could be the financial stuff is a little easier to solve. 
some of the criminal stuff might be harder to solve. <laughs> Understood. Okay, great. <laughs> Moving on to number nine, working capital and accountable and accounts receivable. All right. So number nine, we're going to dive deep into the accounting world, but I can tell you firsthand hand that this can really mean millions. I mean, a lot depends on the firm you decide to join and what their specific policies are in terms of working capital and accounts receivable. And, a, and just a quick third item, if you need to switch from cash accounting to accrual accounting going forward or vice versa, uh, there are also things that can be negotiated. These are really all things that can be negotiated before you make a decision. But the working capital required at close uh, comes out of your proceeds. And if you bill in arrears, depending on when the deal closes, you might be sacrificing some significant receivables. And of course, uh, that has an effect on what the final deal value can mean to you. Number eight, where is the growth really coming from? So for the last few really crazy market years, um, they've really put this issue uh, on buying firms' radar. And maybe a few years ago, when assets were going up, 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 and the uh, cost of capital was basically zero, they didn't bother to differentiate market growth from new client growth. But buyers have really, really become more discerning now. Uh, that doesn't mean that if your if your revenue slowed in 2022, that that firms won't be interested in you. But if that market loss was largely offset by adding new clients, uh, that is very attractive to buyers and that will add to your deal value. As long as you're growing, right? As long as you're growing. There you go. Number seven, legal structure and cap table. So most of the firms we work with, they are, they are usually LLCs or S-Corps. And those structures really don't present any problems whatsoever. Uh, but C-Corps, uh, of course, they still can be sold. But the deal structure of either an at, but the, the, the deal structure could be different. It could be either an asset or a, a full equity purchase. And that can really affect what the shareholders of a C Corp end up taking home after taxes. Uh, the cap table of the firm is really, a, I think, a much more serious issue and something I run into more frequently than C Corps. The cap table of the firm can be uh, a really a significant challenge, and specifically if you have a junior partner or a key person who you really consider a de facto part owner of your firm, and they may receive a percentage of the net profits uh, like you do, but they aren't actually owners of the legal entity. Uh, this can make sharing closing proceeds in a tax efficient way ultimately very challenging. Again, solvable, but needs to be changed before a process starts. And if unresolved, it, it can really impact after tax proceeds. This next one I love, and it should be emphasized, nice people get paid more. What do you mean, Peter? What do I mean? It's Well, the headline says it all. Um, so I opened up number 10, uh, talking about people's dirty laundry. Uh, and then John asked me another question about dirty laundry. Uh, and now I'm casting dispersions on people's personalities. But I'm going to say that being nice and easy to get along with and, and reasonable when inevitable challenges do come up during a process, and especially in the post-letter of intent signing due diligence period, uh, I'll tell you it has an effect on how much buyers are willing to work with you and give you a break or the benefit of the doubt. And, I, and I'm really being serious here. I have had deals break because the sellers were a little too temperamental, a little too often. And the buyers, hey, I mean, they're human. Uh, people like to do business with people who they like. Uh, that's why it makes sense to have, a, I, I think, an advisor guide you through the process because sometimes you do have to fight and maybe and it's better that I'm the jerk and, and that you aren't the jerk. You know, being a shark in business and being a nice guy, they're, they're not mutually exclusive here. You can be both. Absolutely. 
Number five, think net, not gross. So I could do two hours on this one, but uh, it's, okay. a, it's a shorter podcast and I won't, uh, but I'll, and I'll try to be brief. Um, multiples, EBITDA, gross deal size, uh, those are things that are all important, but truly the bottom line is what do you keep after taxes? That to me is always, always how a deal's value should be measured. And I will tell you, truly knowing that after-tax number can be a, a, a complicated thing to come up with ultimately. Um, factors that affect uh, the after-tax number. Uh, what state do you live in right now? Uh, could you move be, before you sold? Uh, that, could, that decision could save you millions. Um, is the stock, and in some cases millions of dollars of stock, that you receive from this private equity firm, is that tax deferred? Because some are and some aren't. Um, how about com comparing your next 10 years if you stayed status quo, paying a higher income tax rate, as opposed to making a lot less comp over the next 10 years, but receiving a lump sum at close. And then also just to complicate things, maybe a true up after a year and maybe a hold back release after two years. And then maybe an earn out after three years and getting all those things as long-term capital gains. Like, how does that all compare? Again, it gets complicated to understand, but it's all about your what you get net after tax. And in my opinion, that is the true measure of a deal's value. Understood. Number four, 1099s and overrides. It is uh, absolutely fine. And quite often we have 1099 producers in, in a client's office. Um, but the question is, do they want to join you if you decided to sell your business? Uh, how much would you pay them for their books? And is there an opportunity to get those individual 1099s more proceeds than they could get on their own? But could you potentially make money off of, off of arbitrage, right? Uh, how can we be sure to get those 1099s capital gains is another issue that comes up quite frequently. Uh, the overrides you make on them would likely not continue going forward. But how can we make sure to get folks, get you paid uh, for, for going those future overrides? These are all things, and granted, sometimes complicated things that have an effect on, on deal value. So the next one, number three, uh, it's really interesting to me, the revenue mix. And I understand that certain firms can't or might not be able to accept certain types of revenue, correct? Um, well, we can find all revenue works its way in, but every dollar is not created equal. So uh, revenue dollars, unfortunately, in a buyer size really aren't aren't all equal. That doesn't mean they can't factor into a deal, but they will affect the ultimate offer. Of course, annual recurring revenue is the most desirable. Uh, revenue from transactions, like you mentioned, John, and one-time insurance isn't as attractive. But if you have a long history of production uh, and that's not too big of an overall percentage of the revenue, and you're a nice person with no multiple felony connections, fraud convictions, that's a callback to points 10 six. Um, then we can fight to have that revenue treated the same way as the recurring revenue in a deal. Uh, we work with all different types of clients with all different revenue mixes. So I can say with confidence, you know, that we find ways to make sure our clients will get well paid on everything they're selling. But the but the mix really does ultimately affect the deal value. Great. Number two, future expenses. All right. This could be, I think, the number one concern of new clients we work with. Um, who are considering starting a selling process. And if you think, if you think you need to clean up their, they think they need to clean up their expenses before they sell. And I can tell you that that isn't the case. Uh, advisors are small business owners and they are looking to run a tax efficient practice. And of course you have your kids on the cell phone plan and your business pays for your, your you run your lease, your car lease through the business. And there's some family flights and dinners and vacation hotel rooms. 
I can tell you that's all fine because a buying firm will look at your go forward expenses, not what's on your P&L from years past. Um, we actually adjust out any personal and non-recurring expenses before we send your financials to firms that are interested in making offers. Uh, they, they just look at historic financials so they get a better sense of, of a reasonable go forward budget uh, for you as part of their firm. I can tell you this dialogue about go forward expenses can really have a profound effect on your final deal value. It's probably one of the most important things that we do. And the number one thing that really affects the deal value of practices that decide to sell. All right. Well, I'm, 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 I'm mad that you don't have a drum roll. There's no drum roll. No like drum roll. Letterman, but, That's uh, it. We're, we're not that sophisticated, Peter, but uh, it's all about the run rate. It's all about the run rate. Yes. Uh, okay. So we finally hit number one. And I'll start out by saying almost every deal is based on expected future revenue, not what it has been in the past. So you can't cash in on crazy out of out of character years. That's not what deals are based on. Um, historic revenue just really ultimately proves the track record. Uh, buying firms during the due diligence period, which is after you sign the letter of intent, they'll look at every client you have, how big is that client's account currently, and then what fee percentage you charge. And I'm oversimplifying this a little, but that's how they will determine the best estimate of the next year's revenue. And that revenue number is what ultimately what the deal is based on. Again. There's a lot, a lot more to this, but as we discussed in point three, all practices kind of have a different unique revenue mix, but ultimately it's not about historic revenue. It's all about run rate revenue. Peter, I never realized how much more interesting you are than Dick. So this has been fantastic. That is um, patently <laughs> untrue on every level. Well, the, Dick, uh, the, the, the uh, finding great people and surrounding you with smarter people, John, is the sign of a, of a, a talented manager. So agreed. Agreed. I was trying to slam you, Dick, and, and you just made me look bad there. So uh, way to handle it. I loved it. So anything to add before we go, Dick? I think that covers it, John. Look, we we look at this, and I think what it shows is uh, you know, transactions are difficult, but you know, we've learned quite a bit in five years, and, and firms can take advantage of that. But more importantly, all these things also apply to preparing, right? So a lot of these things are things, if you put the house on the market, you don't start thinking about it on Friday and put the house on the market Monday. You start years before. And- there's a lot that we can do to help firms, and and most of the many of the best firms have actually gone through this process. So uh, we stand ready to help. Dick, Peter, great list, very very helpful. That's exactly what we needed. Thanks so much for joining us. Do appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks John. John.